0: Following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. On this podcast, we try to make life a little bit more simple. And today, we're going to hear from a renowned generational expert. Uh, His name's Hayden Shaw. He's a consultant of churches and businesses, has written a couple of great books on generations and helping them understand each other, both in the home and in the marketplace, and even in the church. And uh, he's an all-around thoughtful, funny guy. And I think you're going to enjoy what he has to say, even if you don't agree with all of it, it will certainly open your mind a bit. So if you ever wondered about how do I relate to people that are older than me or younger than me, uh, why are they responding to COVID and uh, racial injustice the way that they are, um, it might have something to do with their life stage or their generational stage. And we're going to get into that today. Uh, at the conclusion of our time together, I'll be back to wrap things up. So stick around and enjoy my conversation with Hayden Shaw.
1: Welcome to the podcast, um, Hayden Shaw. Uh, been a friend for a long time, over ten years, I think, is when you first made your visit out here to us. We were still meeting in a high school. You did some stuff for our our uh, our staff to kind of get us ready to move in the building. We've been in the building ten years now. And uh, I've seen you off and on at various conferences over the years. Uh, just tell us what you've been up to, who you are. Some of our listeners are not aware. Uh, and give us uh, kind of the, the nutshell of who Hayden Shaw really is.
2: Well, first of all, let's start with uh, barbecue. I am a fan of barbecue. We were Amen. discussing that because Rusty is wearing, wearing a Kansas City T-shirt while we're recording. So we were discussing barbecue. I'm a fan of that, eating it, cooking it. The uh, other thing is I got uh, four kiddos. Um, uh, one's a worship pastor um, and you know, one's done children's ministry and now works in sales. And uh, the other um, is audiovisual. And my daughter is in PA school, going into medicine. And so um, live here in the Southern suburbs of Chicago and I worked for Stephen Covey, the Franklin Covey company for almost 30 years. So worked with a lot of businesses before that I started churches and ran out of money in the church planting. And so started doing, uh, working with Stephen Covey part-time and, um, uh, and then ended up going full-time with him and, uh, working with businesses and, and then working with churches on the side. Um, I'd had the good fortune to be mentored by Carl George and, um, And so, you know, learn a whole lot about church consulting and helping churches get unstuck from barriers and, you know, deal with maybe a staff challenge or two along the way. And so growth barriers and staff challenges, that's kind of what I work with. And generational difference was a logical extension of that. Um, And the other topic I focus a lot on is change management, um, because those are the kinds of things that came out of um, starting a church back in the mid 80s when the baby boomers had quit going to church. And uh, all all that kind of play that funky music and have dramas and, you know, you're not wearing a suit and tie. And, um, you know, we weren't wearing jeans with an untucked shirt. So we weren't, you know, we weren't going all the way. But back in the day, we had drums in the house of the Lord. And uh, so, you know, back in the day, we were trying to figure out how to get boomers to come back. So generations has always been a topic. And frankly, the research I did from the business space all came out of um, why won't you know why won't the generations come back to their parents' church?
1: Now that's where uh, you've done a lot of work and a lot of writing. Your book Sticking Points has helped a lot of businesses figure out how to navigate different generations in the workplace. And then your book Generation IQ, which was fantastic, uh, dealt with uh, five generations in the workplace, which is the first time in history we've had five generations kind of knocking around the office together. So um, just wanted to hear your thoughts on that a little bit. Um, you've done so much work on Generations. Uh, just give, and I'm sure it's hard to sum it all up, but just for the, for the context of our, our conversation, because we're going to get into how Generations deal with COVID and how they see the problem of racial injustice. Uh, and we've got the election coming up where we're going to have our first round of Gen Zers voting for a president. And now we're talking about six generations. I think is that right? Can you can you walk us through some of these generations and just kind of how they think?
2: Yeah, real quick. Um, I mean, it's not a real quick. It's a uh, you know the first 110 pages of the of the sticking points book, or in the generational IQ book, you know that's more related to church and and religious families, more faith oriented. The first you know 70 pages are about the spiritual strengths and weaknesses of each of the generations, and so. Quickest way to summarize it is um, uh, traditionalists um, are people who are in their, you know, mid-70s and above. Baby boomers are now people, you know, who are in their uh, early 60s and above. Um, Gen Xers, you know, Gen Xers are now 45, mid-40s until 60. Uh, uh, And then there's a cusp where you've got millennials now hitting 40. And uh, ironically, millennials so hate the name millennial that Pew Research Center discovered that 30% of the older millennials claim to be Gen Z, so they won't have to be labeled with millennial and all the baggage that comes with that in organizations. And so (laughs) uh, our our Gen X, I mean, on the upper end, and now you got people with Gen Z. So a third of the older millennials are like, I'm Gen X, I'm Gen X. And rusty, my favorite story is I was teaching a class in this business and the HR director, she said, Last night, my thirty-year-old husband told me he was Gen X, and I said, "That's not possible." He goes, "Yeah, it is. I did a Facebook survey, and it says I'm Gen X." And she said, "Baby, if you take a Facebook survey to prove you're not a millennial, you are absolutely a millennial. There is no escaping that." And um, and so you've got you know they've got this cusp where you've got you know Gen Xers, um, you know early mid-40s with a cusp down to millennials who'll turn 40 next year and ironically be protected by age discrimination laws. For all of you who still see millennials as 20-somethings, um, they, the, first, the oldest millennials get protected by age discrimination laws next year. And then we've got <laughs> Gen Zers. I put Gen Z in 99. I know a lot of other people start them in 95 or 96, but I put Gen Z in 99 for a lot of good reasons. So that kind of gives you a brief rundown of things. Now, what are they like? Well, each generation is a product of their history. And so, you know, you're in uh, California. And so California in 1943 was a different place than it was in 1971 and a different country than it was in 1987 and certainly a different place in 2020. And so when you think about it, each, each of those generations have grown up in a different country. And if somebody came over, you know, if somebody came over from a different place in the world, we wouldn't say to them, what's wrong with you? Uh, we'd at least listen a little bit before we whispered about what's wrong with them to somebody else. But, you know, when it comes to generations, people don't even hide it. In their families, they don't hide it. We didn't raise you that way. No, because the country you grew up in is a different country. And so we're like people from different countries. And uh, it's one of the reasons why we may listen to music or, or things of other generations, but you know, we, we end up gravitating back toward our own, just like we do when we visit someplace else in the world. We say, great place to visit, but I wouldn't wanna live there as soon as we right. get back.
1: Okay, so with that in mind of uh, all the differences and <clears throat> how we view the world differently, how is each generation, and maybe this is a stage of life, but how is each generation viewing the COVID season that we're in right now? Are we looking at it differently?
2: Covid has stirred up a lot of generational stuff. First of all, it seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Um, seems like a long time ago that we are that October of 2019 happened, and some Gen Xers, uh, Gen Xers. I'm gonna, I got it in the brain now. I'm gonna mix up these two, uh, since Xers were the parents of Gen Z. Uh, just you'll just let me have to let me correct myself, um, dear listener. So, Gen Zers launched themselves into the discourse. They came off a of Reddit and launched themselves into the discourse with probably a, a rocket launcher when they started the OK Boomer, have a, have a bad day t-shirt. And suddenly, OK Boomer was being mentioned by political candidates and in political, it, it, within Congresses and parliaments. Um, it, it got a, a billion hits or downloads or references within the first month. So it truly became this viral thing that tapped into all kinds of stuff. So boomers are saying, you're disrespectful. And it's so funny because other boomers were saying, you said not to trust anybody over 35. You were boomers were the ultimate disrespectful generation. And now you're all whan, whan, whan that Gen Zers are, are doing unto you what you did unto your elders. And so I think that's a huge point on that. But it seems like a long time ago, that OK Boomer kind of shocked us. And then what stirred stuff up is in the midst of COVID, you've got you know, younger people who tended to be more social. And as one younger gentleman said, I don't have a job. I'm in an apartment alone. I can't go out because it's not, you know, there's no it's difficult to social distance on the streets of New York City. I've been in this 450 square foot apartment for three weeks now. Um, so what is it that you think I'm not handling well? And, uh, you know, um, the fact is I'm in a larger home than that. I, um, you know, I have a 16 mile trail that while there are some citizens that have no idea how to measure six feet and, um, you know, and there are some citizens that, you know, aren't paying any attention. Uh, I don't have to worry about my health. Like people do in large cities, um, who live in apartments and, you know, I live here with a uh, you know my wife and family, and so I'm I'm not alone. We may get on each other's nerves from time to time, but I'm not alone. And so you can understand why younger people are like, I, I can't take it anymore. I'm out of here. But yeah, there was a lot of backlash with um, younger generations, and now the discussion is how long can we how how long can we go without um, you know herd immunity or a vaccination or uh, an effective treatment before we have to take people who are vulnerable, which in this case, as we all know, tend to be people who are um, who have some debilitating conditions and are more vulnerable after 60 to 65. And those folks will need to isolate, and the rest of us will begin our lives again. And you know, we'll do similar to other epidemics through the years that weren't treatable and we'll put the most at risk in isolation and they'll, may stay that way for, for, you know, worst case scenario, they'd stay that way for five to seven to 10 years. It's a different world now, but polio wasn't cured for for 40 years. Wow. And so so the generational differences is, well, you can't do this, you're gonna kill a lot of the vulnerable. And people are saying, well, how long will we do this? Before, you know, The Economist magazine, the British publication that said, governments are doing the right thing now, but eventually we'll have to make some hard trade-offs and choices that right now are unthinkable, and now those become the conversations that people have on a daily basis. How much do we open up? How much do we not? And since, you know, the the church aspect of this audience, they certainly understand the amount of email. Some of it hate mail from the saints because sometimes the saints can write things like um, they need little bracelets to say, how would Jesus type? And um, um, sometimes the saints can be downright obnoxious as we have different views on how we how we deal with all of this and what trade-offs we make.
1: So with every generation, it's probably more of a stage of life, how they're affected, obviously, by COVID. But when it comes to the issue of racial injustice, are you finding that um, younger generations, Gen Z, are a little bit more riled up than maybe the older generations? And maybe there's a backlash to what's everybody complaining about? Are you seeing that at all generationally?
2: Well, uh, Rusty, I think the only thing I'd object with is you use the word a little bit. I just got to think how I say this succinctly because if you think when you should open up organizations and especially churches and if you should be allowed to sing and whether or not you, you know, go against uh, the governor's orders in whatever state you're in with whatever restrictions there are on religious freedom, um, those kind of questions that, you know, um, good godly people see very differently and frankly see down generational lines pretty consistently that is nothing compared to um, the conversation around uh, race and the murder of George Floyd. And um, you know, I, I was just talking with, a, you know, with an executive pastor of a mega church who said, you know, they say after September 11th that they you know, a third of the pastors left the ministry. I would be surprised if the numbers weren't higher just because of the backlash that comes as, as the saints try to deal with some of these issues they break very much around generational lines. So I'm gonna give an overall principle before I go into that. Here's the overall principle. You definitely, and I got this from Ed Stetzer, so this isn't mine. Ed said it for, I'd said it, but Ed said it best. We all have freedom of speech. It's one of the rights that we fought for. It's one of the, it's one of the reasons why we support uh, police officers. It's one of the reasons why, you know, um, vast majority of people in churches don't support defunding the police completely because law enforcement's right there in the Bible. Hold that thought because to quote my man, Dallas Willard, I haven't had time to explain all the things I don't mean by that statement. So hold that thought until I can explain all the things I didn't mean by that statement. Okay. However, every time there's a presidential election, more and more people under 50 dislike evangelicals. So ever since um, Kinnaman um, and the Barner Group published Unchristian, every presidential cycle, evangelicals drop and beca- begin to be seen as less and less Christian and more and more judgmental, more and more difficult. Other things I talk about in the Generation IQ book on the, you know, kind of on the chapter of what we do with younger generations. And so here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that social media and political conversations have to be taken, freedom of speech has to be balanced with how many people are going to go to hell because of the way Christians discuss politics. And first, they're not, they don't discuss them in a Christ-like manner. They're angry and mean about it. And then secondly, they esp- they espouse positions that the larger society doesn't understand, and they espouse them in ways that basically say it ought to go back to the way it was when white evangelical Protestants kind of determined the basic conversation in the United States, and that if we were going to and so if we were going to restore values, we would restore the values when white Protestants um, had most of the set the agenda of the conversation. And, um, and many, many, many people are literally aching that it's not like that. It breaks their heart. The fact is one of the things I say a lot in the book is that is the world we're in. That's the world your kids are in. And I love one of the things that my son passed on to me. Um, he's 31. He said that I love this Barna study that discovered that, uh, millennials in church don't really fit anywhere because when they're out with their friends, their friends think they're really conservative, but when they're at church, their church thinks they're really liberal. So they are, they are truly homeless if they're dedicated Christians in the midst of all of this. And so the fact is that generations are going to have to talk about politics in a way that Jesus would, or when we get, to, when we get up to the judgment, I think Jesus is going to line us up like Larry, Moe, and Curly and do some Three Stooges poking in the eyes. Because he's going to go, polit- freedom of speech is important. Politics is important. Justice is important. Moral issues are important. And um, not turning people off before they've had a chance to hear the gospel is also important. You, um, you, do not, you measure out all your dill and your cumin, but you won't lift a finger to help somebody. And the, getting people into the kingdom of God matters more than winning political battles. And um, now you may not agree with my priorities, but um, I, I, we all need bracelets to say, how would Jesus type? And so the greater principle is, it's no longer a it's no longer moral majority, majority. We no longer have home field advantage. It's no, longer, it's no longer a Christian nation in the same way. There's a lot of different worldviews and possibilities. And so the faster we say, what do we do with the world that exists rather than pine for a world that hasn't existed for 15 years, in your world in California, it hasn't existed for 20, 25, but in, you know, my place in Chicago, it hasn't existed for 15. Other parts of the country, it's just, now, you know, it's just now being fought for in terms of more conservative places. That world has changed. So the church is always 25 years late responding to the questions people are asking now.
1: Okay, so for our church leaders listening, what are the questions people are asking right now?
2: Uh, well, let's go back to the one you asked because that's the that's a predominant one that ties into a, kind of a cluster of thinking or questions. So let's start with um, the question about race and justice. Evangelical churches were very comfortable with the with, with the race conversation in the 80s and 90s, which was a colorblind conversation. That the world has become colorblind. The fussing was about things like um, affirmative action how far it goes, how fair it should go. And, you know, there weren't a lot of, and the conversations were about, you know, making sure to treat all people, giving people fair opportunities, fair starting point. And the conversation was largely in um, Caucasian communities about people of color, especially blacks and especially black males, um, not making choices based on character and getting involved in things and, um, creating a lot of problems because of the lack of character, because of moral decisions, and that it, you know everybody who wanted to could have a great opportunity in the country and the world was colorblind. For the last ten to fifteen years, there have been a lot of people in the justice circles who who be considered liberal by a lot of by a lot of um, evangelical church people. So let me you know let me be fair with both sides, and who have been saying mass incarceration. What's called the uh, school to prison pipeline, the fact that a quarter to a third of all black males end up incarcerated, um, that something has to be going on systematically um, and not just there's equal opportunity. Um, you know, I, I would say the vast majority, until, until Bob the Tomato published a video that showed why jobs move from the uh, cities to the suburbs but why the vast majority of suburbs, even in Chicago had major redlining going on that, you know, that, that prevented black males from being able to get jobs that were in manufacturing where, they had, um, um, where, where, where um, two parent families had largely found employment in previous eras. When that shifted, I think the conversation around being colorblind didn't recognize that. I think Bob the tomato and all those views while they got some heat at the same time, a lot of people said, I guess I didn't understand that. So younger generations were hearing those kinds of things about structural imbalances in in, um, education and a different conversation than those of us who went to school in the 70s and 80s were having. And therefore, um, there's a big generational difference in the kind of conversation that families are experiencing when they're having the, it's not just elderly, it's not just older generations, traditionalists and older boomers, who may be what is classically called racist. I wouldn't want my, you know, I wouldn't want my grandchild marrying someone of a different, you know, of a different um, ethnicity. Um, And that was kind of the great definition of colorblind is would you allow your child to marry someone from a different ethnicity? And then the, uh, the younger generations are very much saying we need to have a conversation around what kind of policies have led to situations like George Floyd. And there are a lot of good police officers caught up in a system that changed dramatically between the 60s and now. And we have to look at that as the right system for policing. And, um, and it's not a criticism of police officers as much as it is the system they all work in. And now I know right now, there are probably some listeners going, oh, good night, that man is just reciting CNN or liberal channels. And I'm what I'm doing is I'm quoting what the vast majority of Gen Z and younger millennials, uh, like two thirds um, to three quarters of them, depending on what surveys you read, would say um, if you were to have a discussion and you um, hushed up and listened. Whether you agree with it or not, I'm simply articulating the questions they're asking about, uh, about um, race and about political structures and what they would call, the word they use is justice.
1: Okay, so you, you raised some great great comments here, and I was just meeting with some people the other night, and we were talking about some of these. And I think the, the trouble that a lot of church leaders find is, all right, where have I stepped out of my boundaries and then gotten into politics? or into the justice system when really I need to be focused on the great commission and being the church, because obviously we're supposed to be people that act justly and love mercy and walk humbly. Um, but where do you think our boundaries are on that? What should the church be doing that we're not currently doing because we fear that maybe we're fearful of ramifications, but we're also thinking, well, that's not necessarily my job.
2: Um, Rusty, I'd like to stop this and, re- and record an easier uh, podcast. You uh, need to ask me easier questions, my friend. Um, these are some of the toughest ones churches are facing, church leaders are facing, aren't they? Um, I want to say there is nothing you can do that will avoid having people who will quit your church. So I'm, I'm leading a call for some Methodist church planters, wonderful people of all generations and, you know, and ethnicities. And you know I mentioned Tim Keller's approach, which was he doesn't talk politics at all in uh, you know, there in Manhattan, he only talks um, theology, doesn't talk politics. And people may discuss politics in small groups in other places, but he doesn't discuss it from the pulpit. And it was interesting because a couple of people said that silence is complicity. And um, someone else said, no, silence is evangelism. And so that earlier, you know, that earlier point I made, I think that that principle kind of gives away how I see the world, Rusty, which is if I were going to err, I would err on the side of not putting political barriers in the way of people hearing Jesus. Now, the challenge is Jesus said some things that in his day and time were taken as very political. And so when we say some of the things that Jesus said, people will line up on both sides of things to hear political things that we may not mean, which is why in many cases, um, in many cases, something like, race and ethnicity, a race and structural, and all the questions around race and structural injustice. Um, Those questions, they're not a sermon kind of question in my mind. Prejudice has to be addressed. I happen to be out and, you know, I happen to be out working with a a church um, in your area and popped over to a Saturday night service at Saddleback and Uh, We'd had another incident, and Rick Warren had changed his topic at the last minute and done 45 minutes on why Christians can't be racist. Uh, In my mind, that was a good sermon because you can clearly state that. Um, When you get into solutions for things or what that means, suddenly you get yourself into uh, real issues. I remember a, a guy up in Minneapolis about 15 years ago, Um, talked about how the United States is not only not the nation favored by God, but all nations um, are the uh, whore of Babylon in the book of Revelation. All political powers set them up against the kingdom of God. And, uh, oh, um, about a third of his church walked. And so even if you try to get, even if you try to interpret the book of Revelation, and you're just talking about what is fairly classical interpretation for 2000 years, it doesn't mean you could avoid politics. But I guess what I'm saying is, it's really hard to quote Dallas Willard to explain all the things I didn't mean by that. And that's really the problem of this conversation is that everything we say, we have to then explain everything we didn't mean by every assertion we just said, in order to tread through it lightly. And so I think we can teach on prejudice. I think we can teach on social justice. I think when we get into specifics, that's um, a two hour kind of workshop. That's a, that's a longer podcast. That's a longer mm-hmm. presentation. And um, um, that ends up being a place where we dialogue with all the different generational voices in our congregation. Right. And right now what cancel culture means is we shout down other people.
1: Right. That's, you're right. There's a lot of difficult stuff, and I'm sure you've offended some people. So I'm just going to tell everybody just to, to find you at your website, Haydenshaw.com. I think that's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. Let, let's, let, let me throw you some softballs here.
2: Hey, and, um, and that's fine. But Rusty, let me say one more thing around this topic and, the, and your great question. One more thing. And that is, when I said earlier that the church tends to address questions 25 years late, um, the illustration I give in the Generation IQ book is of people who are still big fans of C.S. Lewis and hand out C.S. Lewis books. And by the way, I see the C.S. Lewis anthology there on your bookshelf. So I, you know, no criticism, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. My kids, my millennial kids are all big fans of C.S. Lewis. The thing is, C.S. Lewis is answering questions really well that people asked right after World War II. And there's been major shifts in the kinds of questions people asked in the 70s and 80s And it takes about 15 years for Christians to not beat each other up for giving answers other people think are heretical or don't like. So one of the reasons it's so difficult to ever give a Christian response to current problems is then the saints turn on each other like dogs. And it takes about 10 years to come up with a consensus of what you can say without your own Christian family turning on you. It doesn't take a long time to figure out what the Christian response is. It takes a long time to figure out how to say it to the other saints won't turn on you.
1: I think we saw a microcosm of this just with the whole, should we close our churches or not during the
2: COVID season?
1: Don't you? I mean, people decided we're going to shut down for a period of time. How dare you? Oh, I guess, well, that's actually for the public good. Well, why don't you open? You know, how dare you not open? Just the constant bickering. Well, things look a lot different a few months after the first closing than they did when it first happened. That's just a few months right there.
2: You know, we can disagree. That's what family does. We can even push and shove. Sorry, some of this is breaking my heart. Yep. But, you know, the scripture says, if you bite each other and attack each other, you'll devour each other. Mm-hmm. It, it's just how... It's just how meat works. You can't chew that much on somebody without, call, without devouring it. And so the point of it is we can all disagree more like Jesus did. Seriously. I think when we get to heaven, he's going to line a bunch of us up and go, what were you thinking? I gave you this great internet platform. I gave you the ability to shout it from a rooftop. And you, you let out your worst self when you were most upset and at your worst emotions. Um, good night. Didn't your grandma tell you to count to 10 before you did stuff that was permanently in the uh, blogosphere? Anyway, I just. No kidding. No kidding. I just think well we said. need to calm down a little bit. All right. So I
1: want to get your opinion on a few things. And I've, I've heard your TED talk, which was fantastic, on emerging adulthood. And to kind of circle back to our conversations about generationalism, we tend to look at millennials and now Gen Zers and say, well, that's the trouble with Gen Zers or that's the trouble with millennials. Your case in point is sometimes it's not necessarily your generation as it is your stage in life, a life stage situation. You're just aging a little bit differently. And your point is where years ago we might have considered an 18-year-old an adult, now it's more like a 27 or 28-year-old as an adult which changes how they view life. Give us, in a nutshell, those three words that you break down that kind of define emerging adulthood today.
2: Number one is freedom. Emerging adulthood didn't exist for the traditionalists. Only 12% of traditionalist males went to college and therefore had an additional four years between graduating high school and having full-time work responsibilities. And, you know, 3% of females, traditional females went to college. When the boomers went to college, a quarter of them in much larger numbers, then it was the first time we really had this new life stage of emerging adulted, but it only lasted four years. And one of the guys in my small group, when he read the Sticking Points book, he said it this way, When I read your book, my thought was, my dad asked me, what are you doing? Because basically the day I graduated, the next day I had to have a job or I had to be moved out. Because emerging adulthood was over the day after graduation. I needed a full-time job. I got three and a half years in his mind to play time and now it was time to buckle down. Well, Gen Gen X comes along and the Xers remember what the economy is like. when, uh, you know, whole movies are about leaving college as valedictorian and working in a video shop, right? And so they left in some bad economy. And so a lot of them went back to school or found part-time jobs. And so as a result, it delayed marriage, it delayed settling down, it delayed finding a career, but mainly because of the economy and longer educational cycles. And so their emerging adulthood was six and a half years. Well, today around the world, survey after survey shows it's you know around 28 to 30. Uh, the average age in the United States for males was 30 before COVID-19 and the uh, great and what will be the second great recession most likely. And so, uh, the 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 great recession pushed marriage by two years, and now it, it'll be pushed up again. And so, what we're doing is elongating the stage of life between adolescence and early adulthood and freedom is the watchword of that. People have a lot of freedom. Um, I got married at 22 and when I got married, it was amazing at 22, how much freedom I no longer had. I couldn't date whoever I wanted. I didn't want to, I couldn't come home whenever I wanted. I had a lot less freedom than any of my kids, any of my, you know, any of my sons do, um, at that same age. And a lot of people are like, "Wow, well, marriage, and Christianity Day had a recent cover story on, on what do we do to save marriage. One of the biggest challenges with marriage is that uh, the research is pretty clear. Uh, people under 30 think 24 is the earliest you should get married. People over, 30, people over 40, the parents of the people getting married, think they shouldn't marry till 27 or 28. So when we talk about why are people postponing marriage, because their parents say, you're not ready for this. What that shows is that there's a new life stage where people are kind of in a holding pattern. They have a huge amount of freedom and a huge amount of choices, and therefore make a great number of changes. And so, when it comes to the topic, the sticking point of loyalty, why aren't younger generations loyal? Because they have freedom, choices, and can change without ramification. Fairly simple. It's not as much generational as it is life stage. You know, it's um, why are older generations? You know, why are older generations reacting the way they do in the midst of COVID? It's as much a life stage as it is older generation.
1: For, um, for all of our church leaders listening, um, they've got to be thinking, okay, so this isn't so much about I got to change everything because the new generation is different. A lot of it is I'm waiting on people to get married and have a kid, and then suddenly it looks a lot more like everything else.
2: And it's interesting that one of the big researchers – um, Christian Smith, as well as the, uh, you know, the fine folks down at Baylor who um, do a lot of this and, and, and you know, and who will um, often take on the Barner folks, Kinnaman, now that he's taken that over. Will also, it will often challenge them in, in the press um, on some of their stats. So good, le- good, well-respected researchers. <clears throat> they both raised the question. You know, the Baylor guys were like, you know, we're making a much ado about nothing. The issue is longer gestation period, and we just wait till they have kids and settle down. What Christian Smith has said is we're not sure about that. We've never had a gestation period this long. Frankly, the Baylor folks have said, yeah, we never have. And especially now that's going to 30, and with COVID, possibly even into early 30s and mid 30s before a lot of millennials start having children. And this is intensified with Gen Z. The research on Gen Z is that the vast majority of general Zers do don't even see getting married until 30. Mm. And so it intensifies, this is, you know, a lot of ways Gen Z is uh, opposite of of millennials, but in this, they're an intensification of millennials. And so, you know, we've never had this long a period to develop non-church habits. Right. Or as Robert, no, the great Princeton researcher said about 10 years ago, uh, the church attendance patterns between the Boomers and the early Millennials are no different when they're married. They're only different when they're single. You can you can account for the vast, the, most of the drop in church attendance between single and married Xers and Millennials rather than um, um, anything else. It's not that the Millennials didn't go to church. It's that single Millennials didn't go to church, and because they're single so much longer, there's a much greater drop.
1: Oh, that's good insight. Okay, I want to throw you a few softballs here because I've heard you talk about this before, and I think it's a lot of fun. You've mentioned before that you can define a generation's fears by its horror movies that it puts out. So you walk have- us through uh, just the, the g- different generations, what kind of horror movies they had, and thus, what kind of fears they were facing.
2: Well, the traditionalists were scared of the atomic bomb, and so they had Godzilla, although I know Godzilla, king of the monsters, did make a reappearance a couple years ago, right? So they've got Godzilla, they've got Mothra, um, they've got large bugs. So you hit something radioactive, and then you grow enormous, and then you destroy everything around you with these lasers. So basically, all their monsters were mushroom clouds. And think about where they happened. And then they all attack Japan and Japanese people are running everywhere. So it is, you know, it, it, it's what they, we were scared of. We were scared of the, and I'm still old enough to remember drills in school in my early elementary school years where we'd go out in the hallway and we would do um, atomic bomb attack drills. Mainly we did fire drills, but we did a couple of atomic bomb drop, uh, attack drills. The second is, um, you know, when the boomers came along, we were scared of, uh, we were scared of overpopulation. Um, It's a little less obvious with boomers, but one of the big movies was Soylent Green about a world with so much overpopulation that you went to a chamber and went to sleep and then they turned you into food because people were starving. And uh, the investigator finally finds at the end of the film that Soylent Green was made of human beings that had been. And so we had a lot of ecological fears and, of course, you know, we were afraid of the great red threat. So the villains were always the Soviet Union and Russia. And uh, one of the reasons Whitney Houston's bodyguard movie um, a lot of people thought was stupid is it, it, it rolled around for 15 years in Hollywood. And it was originally supposed to be um, sniper shots. And then when it ended up being, you know, something completely different because the Cold War was over and it just didn't have the didn't have the same effect without Kevin Costner who knows if anybody would have gone anybody would have gone to see it and so uh, we were afraid of you know red October and then when it comes to the uh Xers it was truly horror because Xers were such a small generation and we were scared of kids uh, Rosemary's Baby came along there was Damien there it ended with Children of the Corn Children of the Corn didn't do well initially and um it's because that covered the whole life cycle of the drop in the birth curve that makes Generation X so small. Because we were scared that children were going to come and eat your life. All those traditionalist women said to all those ex-daughters, don't do what I did. Don't have three kids and a mortgage by 25. And so we saw a massive drop in kids. And then out in California, baby on board, decal started showing up in the back of uh, minivan windows. And we had three men and a baby and raising Arizona and the baby boom and this whole genre of, you know, babies will transform your life. And it really gave new, new lease on life to Disney World. That whole idea that children are amazing, uh, that children are enchanting, that, you know, you really don't need a mama because they all die in all those Disney movies, right? Mama dies really quick in all of those. Um, you really just need children and magic. And, and you know, now Disney can put out a movie and it's a billion dollar brand almost immediately with the, you know, with a ring on sales and Halloween costumes. Because when the Xers were along, kids were not the thing, and they had The Black Hole, a disaster of a film. But they could start making children's movies again because, you know, children were our salvation. And um, um, children everything. And frankly, you know, right now, family has replaced God as the great focus of life. Family is the great idolatry, if we're going to get real in, in uh, old classic um, 1800s terminology. Family is the new idolatry where we worship family as a society. And everything that honors family is wonderful. And um, as I argue in the book, it's just too much weight for human beings to bear. It puts incredible stress on marriages to have a great marriage and a great family and to measure the success of our kids. And, and um, Atlantic monthly had a cover story about a psychologist who had all these 25 year olds who were coming in saying, I'm not happy and I don't know what to do. And I can't tell my parents because they'd be heartbroken because all their life, they didn't work to put pressure on me to succeed. They just wanted me to be happy and here I am not happy. And what do I do? Their whole lives have been a failure. All the sacrifices they've made have been a failure because I'm not happy. Um, That is just too much weight for anybody to bear. And so suddenly we went into happiness And um, now our great fear is terrorists. And so, zombie everything. We're afraid of zombies because we're afraid of terrorists. You're walking around in the grocery store and you try to grab some yogurt. And instead, there's a zombie there who wants to turn and Walking Dead eat your your brain. And so, suddenly, we're afraid of being the yogurt. And as a result, we are, um, you know, we got zombie everything, even zombie pride and prejudice. So, we got zombie everything Uh, because that's what we're scared of today. (laughs) <laughs> Genziers, however, it's interesting. Um, um, Genziers have their own musical. Dear Evan Hansen actually sold more soundtracks than Hamilton its first week. No musical soundtrack has sold more the first week than than Dear Evan Hansen, except Man of La Mancha in 1969. Dear Evan Hansen is a musical about suicide, mental illness, and um, online social hazing and class uh, system and bullying, uh, um, as well as addiction, all rolled up into one, I'm going to a counselor and therapy, all all in one musical. I think that's the only generation that can truly pull off a musical that celebrates those things that other generations hid away. Either if you're a traditionalist hid in the basement or the attic with a relative or boomers never talked about it, um, but went to a counselor or um, um, millennials. Uh, mental illness is, you know, is the new coming out of the closet um, today. It's the new neurodiversity is um, kind of the new thing that we're scared of. We're scared of haters who don't allow people to be themselves. I know, but that's not a horror story.
1: Uh, no, that's, that's fascinating. Okay. So I want to give you this one last one <clears throat> because I know you love music. Uh, give me one song for each generation. What defines it?
2: You know I was just in an Italian restaurant on Saturday, and so they were doing Sinatra and my way was uh my way was an anthem for a whole lot of people uh in the era after World War two for baby boomers the uh you know i don't know pick pick anything by the Beatles but um And I know Pet Sounds, you know, Sgt. Pepper's is always number one, and Pet Sounds is always one or two. They're always neck and neck in terms of the best albums of all time. But um, we'll have fun, 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 till Daddy Takes the T-Bird Away. Certainly captured um, things for the optimistic half, the earlier half of the Baby Boomer generation. Um, (laughs) You know, the second half of Baby Boom had had sex pistols, and, you know, London is falling. So they had a little more caustic sense of things as, uh, as we got closer to generation X, um, generation Xers, the, uh, smells like King pride is, uh, you know, what comes to mind for generation X and that whole, that whole grunge anthem thing. Um, millennials are going to hate me for this, but in the book, I actually give them Bob the builder. Can we build it? Yes, we can. And, um, so I know it's not fair, but I give them Bob the Builder because they were raised with such optimism. Their parents really did tell them that you can be anything you want to be. And we'll support you going to college with a number of majors that have no hope of ever paying off. One of the big differences with Gen Z it's Gen X, parents are like, yeah, we're, I think theater is a wonderful thing. And you can do that on your own dime or you can be a minor while you get another degree because you're not living in that room where, where, where you're, we're kicking you out. So it's so funny how the Xers were like, yep, you can be anything you want to be as long as you get a degree in something that pays. And so when the millennials were, you know, when the millennials were starting in the workplace, it was, I would rather do a job that I'm passionate about than a job that pays well. And the numbers have almost flipped with Gen Z because the Xer parents are like, yeah, you just wait and see what it's like to go through all these recessions. And so the Xers, you know, now it's, I want a job that gives me stability and only a third say, I want a job that truly follows my passion, regardless of the consequences. So, um, I'm sorry, all I got coming to mind is Bob the Builder, but, um, um you know,
1: no, that's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, I, I would only correct you on one thing, because I am a general Xer. Yes, sir. Um, and that is, the name of the song is Smelled Like Teen Spirit.
2: Teen Spirit. Nirvana. See, I always get it wrong. Thank yeah, you. Thank I knew you. it when I said it, I'm like, I'm going to get this wrong, because... I really tried, Rusty. I really tried to listen to the greatest hits. I remember I remember where I was working out when I finally said, I just can't do it. I just don't like Nirvana. Yeah. I've listened to this seven times and I just can't do it.
1: It was a coming of age moment. I remember where I was when I heard that song for the first time. So all Gen Xers do. Hey, buddy, I'm so grateful for all of your books, all of your podcasts, all of your material you put out to help out churches and businesses and parents to deal with generational issues and understanding our kids and each other. And uh, you're a real blessing to uh, not just the church, but to everybody. So thank you for your time and hope to have you on the show again soon. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I don't know about you, but my head is still spinning with some of those concepts. And he's—he's uh, he's just great. His book again is Generation IQ. That's the one I highly recommend. Sticking Points is a little bit more focused on uh, businesses. And there's out by this point a new book called Sticking Points Two or 2.0, which kind of gives some more insights, especially into Generation Z. So check it out, and I'll be back next week with brand new content as we continue to make life a bit more simple.
2: Let's see.